Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. In the 70s at Princeton, a fascinating study was done. Uh, what they did is they took some seminary students and they wanted to have a test on compassion. They wanted to figure out what does compassion mean and, and how do people normally show compassion. So they took a number of students who were in the divinity program at, at Princeton University and they had them do a, participate in a study. Now, they didn't know what the study was about. They thought that the study had something to do with totally other than what it was. But the way the study was constructed, the first half of the study, they had to be on the north side of the campus in one particular room. Then they'd finish up whatever little paper they were filling out there, and then they'd have to walk across all of Princeton to the southern end of the university to go fill out another, uh, the, the second half of it. And what they didn't know is that the real point of the study was what would happen during their walk. The people who were conducting this study had someone dress up and ask for change on the way and say, can you help me? And they were putting someone who was in need, someone who was vulnerable, someone who needed some help on their way. And they were testing these students of divinity, would they stop to help the person in need? It's interesting, the results that they found. They, they weren't necessarily terrible, but they, they weren't necessarily good either. What they found is that the more time that they gave people between point A and point B, the more likely they were to stop and help somebody. But the quicker they made it, the more they made that person feel like they were in a hurry, the less likely they were to stop and help someone who was genuinely in need in their path. Now, if you're honest, I wonder how you would have done if you were participating in that study. You know, I think when we look at our lives, you'll hear me preach on the topic of being hurried very regularly. We, we live in a hyper-hurried, hyper-fast culture. Everything is all the time. We have our news on our phone, and if it takes us more than a minute and a half to get the most recent update, then we feel like we have been betrayed somehow by our favorite news sources. We live in a, a fast-paced world where literally now, with Zoom and work, we're, we're expected to respond to everything within an, an impossible amount of time. It's so quick. Nobody can keep up with the speed of which we're going through. But Jesus had a way of slowing down and being with people, didn't he? It's really interesting. When you read the life of Jesus in the gospel accounts, he regularly was in these one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. It was almost like the disciples were expecting him to be operating at a much larger level, right? They were constantly thinking about the crowds. They were thinking about the systems. They were thinking about the organization of it all. And yet Jesus would regularly be one-on-one -on -one with a person. So often he would be speaking with them. He'd be talking to them about their life, asking them questions. At times he'd be holding their hand and helping them get up. Jesus had a way of slowing down. In order to be compassionate Christians, we're going to have to learn how to slow down. We can't race through life and think we're going to master this Jesus thing. Jesus slowed down. Jesus was with people. Jesus took time with people, and he allowed the distractions of everyday life to become his normal, his priority. And Christians, once again, have to learn this. In other words, when it comes to caring for broken people, my question to you is this. Do you resemble Jesus? Ask yourself that. You've read the stories of Jesus' life. When it comes to actually caring for people who are suffering around you, do you look like Jesus or not? We've concluded the first two chapters of the book of Acts, and I'm telling you, I'm having a blast going through this book with you. I don't know if you've already taken away some good stuff, but I have, and we're now entering into Acts chapter 3. Now remember, in Acts chapter 2, 
what did we learn? We learned about this important chapter in the Bible where this one moment in history of the first Pentecost of the New Testament where the Holy Spirit flooded down on, on mankind. Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and then you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So they waited and then the Holy Spirit came and you remember there was that whirring sound of wind and flames like tongues of fire appeared over people and everyone, all the apostles started speaking in languages that weren't their own or at least the crowd started hearing them speaking in languages that weren't their own and 3,000 were added to their number. This incredible revival moment took place. And I asked that question, and we asked the question when we studied Acts chapter 2, do, do we actually believe that kind of thing can happen again? We go about our Christian life, and sometimes I think we don't expect much. We don't ask for much. What did Jesus say? You don't receive because you don't ask? We don't ask for anything. And, and all the while, I'm looking at the book of Acts, and I'm telling you, we're, we're, we're not even in this thing yet. You wait till we get to Acts chapter 7, 8. Oh, wait till Acts 11. I mean, the things that were taking place in this church, in this early New Testament church, they lived with an expectancy. They lived with a fervor saying Jesus could show up at any moment and just blow the roof off this place, and I'm going to pray and act as if he's about to do it. And we need some of that in this church. We need some of that. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, and it's a comp you're going to find Acts chapter 3 and a lot of the chapters, it's a very similar theme that takes place in these chapters. There's a miraculous event followed by a sermon. A miraculous event followed by a sermon. And what I like to call these is I call these power encounters and truth encounters. There's a power encounter of the reality of the Holy Spirit moving that stirs people to say, what is going on? And then there's a truth encounter where a follower of Jesus goes out and explains with their mouth exactly what's taking place. When I do evangelism, I'm looking for both. I want people to come in contact with power encounters and truth encounters in the same moment because when I see that take place in this book, revival seems to happen pretty regularly. That's what I'm looking for when I go out sharing the gospel. So let's dig in. First, we're going to look at the power encounter. Let's look at this miracle that took place. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he, the man who was asking for alms, fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now let's walk through this power encounter, try to figure out what's going on, and, and try to take some lessons away from it for ourselves. First of all, what do we see? It was the ninth hour. Now that's language that's lost on us, but what that means is it was three o'clock. Okay, so there are three normal times that most devout men in Jerusalem would go to the temple to do their daily rituals of prayers. They'd go to the temple together, a crowd would have been amassing, 
And this particular hour is probably the most popular one because it was right as the daily sacrifice was being made. So a lot of the devout people would be going into the temple to offer prayers. This was, uh, it was the largest audience of the day. Now here's a quick little nuance for us to pull out from this. If you want to have a meaningful prayer life, you have to have a plan and you have to stick to it. Look at Peter. What do you, look at Peter and John. They have this plan. They're going into the temple three times a day and they're offering prayers to God. Now think of the time this would have taken them. They had to walk to the temple from wherever they were. Now keep in mind, we don't need to go to a physical temple to do this, but just look at the lives and the patterns in these men's lives. Three times a day they would go. They'd enter into the temple. They'd go to their place. They'd mingle among the people of God, and they would pray. You go through the scriptures. You see this happening all the time. Remember Daniel? Remember Daniel? And in the situation was told to Daniel in the Old Testament, he was commanded, you should not pray to anyone else. And what do you find him doing later that evening? His regular time of prayer. He's up in his room praying the same time, the same way he always does. If you want to have a meaningful prayer life, you need to set aside specific times to engage and labor in prayer. That doesn't mean that prayer shouldn't happen sporadically throughout the day and that you're just not communing with God. Paul would oftentimes say, I pray ceaselessly. And that was a lifestyle of just seeing God in all the things of his day. Let me tell you, for me, what this looks like is my day begins at 6 or a little bit before 6 every single day. And I know before my kids wake up, I, I need an hour with the Lord. That's what it looks like, right? At least, at least 45 minutes, hopefully an hour, an hour and a half, whatever I can get in, I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. And I've begun to build some rhythms and habits of my life and tools and guides I use to walk me through that time to make it meaningful. Now, everyone's in a different place in their journey, but here's the, here's the nuance for you. If you don't have a plan, you're probably not going to grow in your spiritual walk. Make a plan. Stick to it and commit to it. Now, there was a man who was lame from birth who had been carried by his friends to a gate on the east side of the temple at this hour. Now, this was a wise scheme for this man because you got a lot of very pious religious people going into the temple. Now, I don't want to look too deep into this man's motivations, the, the lame man who was asking for money. However, there's a bit of shrewdness here in his ideas. He's going to get all the people coming out from church, basically, and it's not a bad place to be standing asking for money. Now, there's significant irony in the setting, and this is lost on us if we're not careful. Consider a few factors here. We're told he's placed by his friends at the east side of the temple at the gate that's called Beautiful. Now, this was the most beautiful of the four entrances into the temple. It had 75-foot-tall uh, arches that was overlaid in bronze. It was, it was amazing. That's why it was called Beautiful. To be there was to just see a wonder of human architecture. It was just the most beautiful place in Jerusalem, and oftentimes, actually, Jesus would do some of his preaching right in that colonnade that was underneath those places. And here we have this man who's been crippled from birth, he's lame from birth, who is asking for spare change from those who's coming in literally underneath the gate that is called beautiful. This gate that's supposed to be the entrance into the place where healing can take place. That's what the temple was. God was supposed to reside in the temple. And here's a man who day in, day out was placed underneath the gate that was called beautiful that supposedly if he could go in, there would be the God that would offer him healing in all different ways in life. Placed over and over right underneath all this beauty in all his brokenness. There's a cyclical brokenness to this man's life, isn't there? We're told very specifically that he was born in this condition. 
And the way the verb structure is in this sentence, it was a regular pattern for his friends to place him at this gate. I think of this man's life, and I'm trying to get into his mind, and I'm just thinking of the, the expectations he had on that day. Hopefully I can get a little bit of change. Hopefully my friends will come pick me up at the right time and not get distracted. I wonder if there was a, a sense of shame at his predicament. The man holds out his cup and sheepishly asks two strangers whom he, he does not know for change, but those men happen to be Christians. This is really interesting. They happen to be Christians. Now, what is a Christian? A Christian is a Christ one. That's what the word means. They're Christ ones. And so when you look at these men, what you should be seeing is little Jesuses. That's what a Christian is. So if you're a Christian, when people look at you and they see your life, they see your behavior, they see how you walk and talk and interact with people, they should be looking on a little form of Jesus. Not perfect like Jesus was, but someone who's becoming more and more like him, wouldn't you say? A Christ one? I mean, really, if you're going to take that title which I'm guessing most people in this room have taken the title Christian. Realize what that means. Christ one. And ask yourself this question. Does your life outwardly resemble Jesus to the point that other people would look in on your life and say, that looks like Jesus? You know, I mean, as I'm, I'm looking on their life, it looks a lot like Jesus. Well, Peter and John look at this man who's asking for money, and he, they say, look at us. I imagine this man is expecting to get something from them. And then Peter and John kind of change his expectations. They look right back at him and they say, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now look very carefully at verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, and Peter, he took him by the right hand and raised him up. There's this touch that takes place. It's very Jesus-esque, isn't it? Remember Jairus' daughter, who in the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, Jairus' daughter had passed away. Very clearly it says Jesus took her by the hand and pulled her up out of death. Here we have the New Testament apostles. Instead of just passing by someone or throwing them a little bit of change, walk up to them, grab him by the hand, and they use human touch. I don't want you to lose how important this is in the Christian life. I don't want you to miss this. This can't be manufactured. You're going to be a Christian. You've got to get used to this. Picks him by his hand and helps him stand up. This man does not know it, but he's about to be caught up in the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6 reads this way. Then, speaking of the Messianic age, when the Holy Spirit would come, then shall the men leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Let me say it again. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Here's this man who's beginning to sense, feel the sensation in his knees and his ankles, and the text says that he's beginning to get strength in his ankles, where he had never had any strength. It was completely atrophied from no use. And repeatedly in this section, it says he begins to leap. You read through this, he's just leaping. He can't stop leaping. He's clinging on to Peter, and they walk into the temple together, and he's still leaping. He's leaping so much that people are beginning to take, and take notice, and they're saying, what's going on? What's the ruckus underneath the gate that's called beautiful? The last time there was a ruckus like this underneath that gate, Jesus was alive, and he was ca causing quite a commotion. What's happening now? Turns out there's some Christ ones that are in there. That's what's going on. They're the ones causing all the ruckus. 
And we're told that the crowd was filled with wonder and amazement. Power encounter. See, when there's power encounters... Power reverberates. If ever you're in a place where you feel like a shock wave, like maybe you're near something and something drops very heavily down the street, you can feel it in your house when something moves. And when you're in a power encounter with the living God, when the Holy Spirit shows up and does something that everyone there knows, that's the Holy Spirit. Everyone who's in proximity feels the reverberations of it. And they say, what was that? What just took place? Now let's pull some important insights out from this power encounter. Number one, when the church depends on money, they're in trouble. (laughs) That's a side note, not necessarily the most important piece from this passage, but let's make sure we don't miss that one. What were Peter's words? Silver and gold I don't have, but I got something better than that. We live in a uh, hyper-Western modern church era where much of what we consider church and what our expectations of church are, even just what our expectations of when you come into this room and and what your interactions are going to be like, you might not realize it, but a lot of it is based on expectations that require a very large budget. You you might not really realize it, but it is. And in the modern Western church, there's models we've developed that aren't necessarily, they're not wrong, there, there, there isn't a very specific model. If we were to go to Ghana right now or we were to go to any other place in the world where perhaps churches are being done in a different way with less of a budget than we might have, it's not that our model is more right or less right or more wrong or less wrong than any other model out there. It's just sometimes our model, we end up depending on money to take care of our problems. Peter says, gold and silver I don't have. And I, sometimes I do wonder if our dependence on money to get real biblical work done does not limit the power that we might otherwise assume and expect to take place in us if we didn't have those funds. I'm saying some dangerous words here because I know that it takes a lot of money to rent a place like this. I know that to be able to house a place like this is important and money is not necessarily wrong, but, but make sure you hear this. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time you were in a power encounter with the Holy Spirit? And if the answer to that question is, I've never experienced anything like that, I wonder if there's an over-dependence on money to do the biblical work that otherwise should take hard Christian living. Secondly, I want to have a word on miracles. Okay, we're going to encounter lots of these types of stories in the book of Acts, okay? We're going we're to learn about men who were, were crippled, all of a sudden they're walking. People who were on the verge of death, coming back to life. All types of miracles happening. Here's a question we should be asking. Is this possible and does God still do this today? Because when I look out, it doesn't seem like those types of miracles happen at the pace and the speed that we're going to encounter them in the book of Acts. So let me equip us for the whole rest of the book of Acts. Here's my, here's my theology on miracles. Does God do miracles? yes. And amen. Someone shout hallelujah real loud for me. Hallelujah. So I'm going to do it again. Ready? Does God do miracles today? Yes and amen. Hallelujah. Yes, he does. And we should live with a fervent expectation that he could show up on any day in any way and perform a miracle. That's the God we serve. Now, how does oftentimes, how do these types of miraculous power encounters often happen? They often, as we'll see in the book of Acts, and as I've studied world history and Christian history, and when I look at movements of the gospel taking place around the globe, where these types of miracles tend to show up in greatest force and number 
is when the gospel is going into territory where the gospel has never been. So, for example, I think I shared this with you recently. Let's talk about visions and dreams. A study was done recently in Iran, I think. They interviewed 600 recent converts from Islam to Christianity to ask them how they converted to Christianity. 25% of the 600 Muslims converting to Christianity in Iran said they had a vision from a man in white claiming that he was the Alpha and the Omega and directing them to the Word, the Bible, that they had never read or seen before. Does God do visions? Amen. Yes, He does. Does God do miracles? We got plenty of those stories in this church. Actually, the Lord just took my breath away. I'm looking out in this room and I'm thinking of some miracles of the last year and two years. Does God do miracles? Yes and amen, he does. He does. You gotta live with an expectation that he's gonna do miracles. I've seen him in this place. Sometimes God does miracles that take your breath away. But he also moves in power encounters all the time that aren't necessarily this overtly miraculous. God's so good, isn't he? Man. He doesn't always move this directly. Sometimes when he does a miracle, it's, it is a miracle, But the way he does it is through the hands of doctors. Or the way he does it is through the hands of a Christian showing up and and speaking into depression in someone's life. And so what I want to tell you is this. The Christian is the one who at the end of the day when they put their pillow on their bed, they look up to God and they say, thank you for the miracle you did, even when it's not necessarily overtly as clear as a lame man walking. So we live with the expectation that he can do anything. And we know that when we see God move, we're always giving him thanks for what he's done. Third is this. Your testimony will draw people in. Look at this lame man. He's just had this transformative power encounter happen in his life. He's standing up. He's leaping. He's shouting on the streets. And all of a sudden, the crowds are coming in. And and basically what's happening is God is setting them up for a truth encounter, to experience the power of God through the proclamation of God's word. And, And what is it? It's his testimony. What's he leaping about? What's he sharing about? He's screaming at the top of his lungs, look at what God's done in my life. i got to tell someone, it can't stay in here. This thing can't stay bottled up. Jesus is way better than bottling this up. It's a, and, and, and there's this testimony that's flowing out of his lips. Do you tell anybody about what Jesus has done in your life? Do you ever leap for what Jesus... Let's start there. Do you ever leap for what Jesus has done in your life? I mean, does it just make you... Yes! I, got, I don't know what I do. I don't have the courage necessarily to go out and do what, what this man's done yet, but I know this. I got to leap. At least I can leap in my room about what Jesus has done. If you don't start there, then telling other people is not going to happen. So start with the leaping. Find a joy in what Jesus has done in your life. And if you don't yet have the joy, I got to ask the question do you understand what he's done for you? I mean, if you don't have a leaping in you about what Jesus has done, I'm not sure you've wrestled with your own sin yet. Because you were on a destiny of, with hell. That's where you were headed. Your sin had separated you from God, and it was far worse than you could ever imagine. But Jesus was crucified and murdered so you could have your sin forgiven. I'll tell you what, that puts a leaping in my step. And then when other people hear you leaping, when other people see you with a testimony, they got to scratch their head and say, what's going on in this guy's life? 
power encounter. Power encounters pave the way for a truth encounter. Here's the deal, ready? Never waste a power encounter. If you ever see God do something, if you're a Christian, show up with the truth. Because here's what happens. Sometimes God's doing all this crazy stuff, and here's what we're doing as Christians. We're, we're standing back in awe of what God's done. Meanwhile, the person over there has no idea, no connection to Jesus of what's just taken place. But we're in their life, and we got to show up and say, I know you didn't see it, but can I just explain to you what just happened? This is how movements happen, church. Because God's doing a whole lot of stuff out around you in your spheres of influence. So Jesus steps in and delivers the truth encounter. Now let's read the first half of this. I'm going to go a little quicker through this so I can get to some conclusions. Verses 11 through 16. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Can I just pause there? Look at his directness. I mean, are you seeing Peter's directness in this sermon? I mean, he is, he is holding back no punches on this one. We do ourselves a disservice when we dance around the truth of Jesus, church. The world's pretty direct with their beliefs. We can be direct with our own, okay? Let's keep going. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Notice he's giving his firsthand testimony. I'm a witness of what actually happened. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now two things. First of all, notice how Peter deflects all glory to Jesus. They want to look at Peter. They want to say, who's this guy who's doing incredible stuff? And he goes, don't you look at me. My life is an arrow pointing to heaven. You ever study the, the, the man Rich Mullins who used to sing, Our God is an Awesome God? A great biography on his life is called An Arrow Pointing to Heaven, right? And he was just the kind of guy, you look at him, don't look at me. I, I'm just pointing up to Jesus. He's deflecting all the glory up to Jesus. Pride, pride will be your downfall. In your life, make it your aim that whenever anything gets directed at you, you just direct it right back up there. That's the work of Jesus in my life, because truly it is. Now look at where he goes next. Did you notice the names that Peter uses of Jesus? Three different titles and names in this bit. Verse 13, his servant, Jesus. Verse 14, the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, the author of life. It's interesting how Peter is using all these different names to describe the title and the beauty and the majesty of his Messiah. He's more than just a man. He, he, he's trying to communicate. He's the author of life. He's the holy and righteous one. How do you describe Jesus? You know when he comes up in some conversation, do you talk about him like he's any other person? Or when you talk about him, are you fighting for words to describe your Messiah? He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. You need a few more? Here you go. He is the great I am. He's the lamb who was slain. He's the forgiver of sins. 
He's the humble servant. He's the conquering one. He's the branch of David. He's the son that was given. He's the ruler of nations. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the upholder of all things. He's the brightness of His glory. He's the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is a man of sorrows. He's the shepherd of Israel, the root of Jesse. He's the bread of life. He's the hidden manna. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley. He's the true vine. He's the bright and morning star. He's the light to the Gentiles. He's the rock of salvation. He's the final Adam. He's the resurrection from the dead. He's the king of peace. He's the Lord of justice. He's our Messiah. How do you speak of Jesus? Pick any of those titles. People want to know who he was. And if you speak about him like he's any other person, they're going to miss out on who he was. Speak of him as he is. The Bible gives hundreds of different titles to the God who is our God. Own them. Get to know him. Get to know his titles of who he is. And then Peter says, in that name this man was healed. That's where the power comes from. You want to know how the miracle happened? It's in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how it takes place. Now look at the second half of this sermon. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ, that word means Messiah, Savior, his Savior would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Quoting from Genesis chapter two, or Genesis chapter 12. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All right, let me pull out three quick things from the second half of that sermon. First of all, Notice what Peter's first action is to them. He explains what's taken place. He points it to Jesus. And then he gives them an action step. And the word he uses is one that no one likes to talk about, but he's already used once in his first sermon. You know what it is? Repent. Repent. Somehow we have gotten to a place in modern Western Christianity where our explanation of the gospel does not utilize the word repent. And as a result, we have made a lot of very weak Christians. If your version of accepting Jesus Christ does not have the first step of reckoning your own sin and repenting of your sin and determining that Jesus will now be your Lord, I'm not sure if you actually receive the gospel. You may have received something that's emotionally hopeful, a caricature of the gospel, but until you've actually repented of your sin, turned from your sin, and determined to live for Jesus, your new Lord, I'm not sure if you got the gospel. Now listen to me. All of us will be sinners until Jesus returns or until we die. Sinlessness is in the glorified state. 
Yet there is a journey of sanctification that begins when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. We do a disservice by removing repentance from the gospel. Church, one of the things I'm passionate about, and I have been for a long time, and you will hear this come out of this pulpit and in my writing and in my podcast, anytime I'm teaching, what I'm trying to do is encourage you with a boldness in the gospel. Something we have gotten away from in the last few generations in modern Western Christianity is we've tried to make the gospel so easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy for people to get on board with. I don't want to change your life. I just want you to basically do the same thing you're doing, but Jesus is a good guy. You should have a bit of Jesus in your life too. Don't you think just a little sprinkle of Jesus in your life? That would be good for you. Look how nice of a guy he is. Don't you want some Jesus in your life? You know what kind of Christianity is going to get you? Powerless Christianity. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in this church over and over again is infuse a courage and a boldness in the church to say, no, the gospel requires repentance. And you want to meet Jesus? First, you've got to turn from your sin. You don't want to turn from your sin? You're not ready for Jesus. Because Jesus gives faith, new life, and regeneration to people who repent and trust in him. That's the message of the gospel. Number two, look in verse 20 how there's a hope for a future restoration. Verse 20, he says, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy ones. You know what this miracle was that took place in Acts chapter 3? It was a foretaste of what is to come. That's what it was. Anytime you see healing take place, what it is, it's, it's a subtle glimpse into what is to come. It's amazing. So every time you look or you look in your life and you see Jesus moving in a powerful way and you see restoration happening and you see healing take place, what it is, it's, it's a brief glimpse, great or small, into what heaven will look like because heaven is the place when Jesus returns where there's no one who can't walk anymore, where there's no more tears, where there's no more death, where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering. And Christians live with this undeniable, ecstatic, leaping hope in the day when Jesus returns to reset all things. In this life, we're building the kingdom, and we have this expectation that we will see more and more of heaven work through our fingers and our hands and our churches, and yet we always keep our eyes on heaven when Jesus returns and sets all things straight. This miracle is a a glimpse into what will come. Number three, there are consequences to determining not to trust in Jesus. Verse 23, let me read it again to you, very difficult verse. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, speaking of Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. There are two types of people, biblically. Now you might disagree with this, but that means you're disagreeing with scriptures. There are two types of people and there is no middle ground. There are those who have repented and made Jesus their Lord. And there are those who are continuing to live as their own Lord. Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out. There is a life that is truly life. The life that you were made for is trusting in Jesus and living with a fervency and zeal underneath his lordship, not living for your own personal satisfaction, but living for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then there is a life that might mock that life, that might live some completely other life, or the life that has taken the title Christian but is not that, and all of those other lives remain in eternity apart from Christ. There is no lukewarm in Christianity. Peter's first sermon, he calls him to repent, and then he lays the law down, and he says, choose what side of the line you're going to be on. 
Have you made a decision for Jesus or have you not? Now I'm looking at you right now and I'm pleading with you as a pastor in this city, perhaps as your pastor, if you've already committed into this church or you've been coming for a while, if you have only taken the title Christian but you've never actually made Jesus Lord of your life, do not leave this room without doing that because nobody knows what tomorrow brings. Nobody knows what the next hour brings. For all we know, Jesus can return before I get done preaching this sermon. Make a choice for Jesus. There is a life that is truly life and it's underneath his lordship. Now let me give us one very clear application for this as we wrap up. Look at the big picture story that's happening here. There's a power encounter and a truth encounter. And the power encounter is this movement where Peter stepped into someone's brokenness, touched them with his hand, and raised him up. And God did a miracle. But notice Peter was present. He did something. He stepped into someone else's life meaningfully. And I started this sermon by asking you, does that, is that your life? Would people get that from your life by looking at the last week? Would they say, yeah, that looks like this guy. That, that, that looks like this woman. Something pretty powerful is taking place at Park South Loop, your church. You should be pretty excited about it. Drew and Allie Beecham, there you guys are. Just stand up real quick. I know you don't want to do this. You're going to deflect to the glory of Jesus, but go ahead and do this. There you go. We love you guys. They're members of our church. Go ahead. And they're pointing upwards to Jesus and what God's doing. All right, go ahead. Sit down. Not too much. Not too much. I want to give you big heads. I love these guys. What they are doing is they've taken over a ministry called Bread of Life Ministry. Very important ministry, a legacy ministry. Roberta has been a stalwart. Roberta, go ahead. Stand up real quick. Roberta has helped lead this ministry in Chicago for many years. She's been on this team. Drew and Allie have taken over leadership of it. What they do is they go to the Thompson Center. It's in partnership with a handful of other larger churches in the city, churches like Harvest, other churches that kind of have a well-established position in the city. And it's a partnership where we go to the Thompson Center and we offer love to those who are in need and who are vulnerable in our community. Their aim is once, once a month to lead Park in caring for some of the most vulnerable in our city, providing food, Bibles, toiletries, clothing, blankets, meaningful conversation, getting to know people's stories, praying with people, sharing the good news of Jesus, learning from people. Keep in mind how much we have to learn from people who are going through suffering because the Bible tells us a lot about what it means to suffer. Sometimes those who are suffering have the most to teach us. And they're going to go once a month and it's a heavy lift. They have been working their tails off to get this thing going. It's pretty impressive what's happening. There's going to be opportunities for you to participate. You can participate financially. You can participate by going out with them and being a part of the movement. I'm looking at a room full of people, and I'm saying, what if we all showed up? What if everyone said, you know what? I'm going to go out. I'm going to be like Peter. I'm going to reach out my hand and help someone stand up, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to be in their life, and I'm going to be present because when Jesus shows up and does a power encounter, I want to be there. I don't want to miss the moment. One of the things I've been doing with my kids the last couple of years is every once in a while I take my daughter over to, well, one of my kids, when I mean, COVID hit before I was able to take all three of them, I take them over to Pacific Garden Mission with me. I take my children with me to do ministry. This is how you teach your children. You're giving them courage. You're showing them what Christianity looks like. Bring them with you. Church, we're getting after this. I try to share all these ministries that are happening. They're happening too fast for me to keep up with them, but I want you to be a part of this. You're going to find out a whole lot more in the next few weeks. There will be tons of opportunities for you to jump in, but make sure you're a part of it. Make sure you stop and take a moment. Peter stopped, and a miracle took place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we worship you. We want to be a part of what you're doing in this city, and we don't want to miss the moments when you do something extraordinary around us.
And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work in this room right now and everyone who's watching online or will at a later date watch online. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work inside our hearts and bring us closer to Christ. I know that myself and everybody in this room has a long ways to go. We're not yet there. You still have us all on a journey. But Spirit, don't leave us here unchanged today. Stir in us a leaping for the name of Jesus Christ for what the gospel has done in our life. We have forgiveness of sin, new life. It's that good. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.